I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sharon Casapula and Dr. Alyssa Gerth in a conversation about the challenges and possibilities of primary care, specifically in medically underserved areas in the U.S. Among other roles, Sharon is the director of the Rural and Urban Scholars Pathways Program at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. This program is otherwise known as RESP. Dr. Alyssa Gerth is a recent graduate of this program. In fact, Dr. Gerth was selected as the 2019-2020 Heritage College Student Doctor of the Year. She will soon begin her residency with the Christ Hospital University of Cincinnati Family Medicine Program. Congratulations, Dr. Gerth, um, and thank you so much to both of you. It's an honor to feature you in this episode. I appreciate your efforts and um, your willingness to join us today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start um, at ground zero, if you will. A pressing challenge that is facing medical schools across the country, including the Heritage College, is this is the shortage of primary care physicians, and particularly primary care physicians who work in medically underserved areas, and those can be in both rural and, and urban settings. Sharon, can you talk to us about some of the, the forces, systemic and otherwise, that are contributing to this shortage? Yes, I can. Um, and there are Um, many different forces that are contributing and have been contributing to this um, shortage of physicians for many years. Um, Recently, um, we've seen an increasing need uh, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Many more people um, are being brought into the pool of covered individuals. So, um, those people need primary care physicians and are seeking out primary care. Um, The population generally is aging um, and they have multiple health issues and they're harder, the population is becoming harder to serve. The workforce is aging. Uh, The majority of practicing physicians right now are 55 or older. Uh, So there's an aging workforce in addition to an aging patient population. Um, Fewer students overall are choosing primary care. That's been a trend for a while. Um, And that is occurring for multiple different reasons. Um, As a culture, our, our healthcare system supports and promotes specialty care over primary care and um, specialists 
um, for example, uh, make sometimes three times that of family medicine physicians. Uh, so there's prestige and increased pay associated with specialty care, and that that lures students in that direction. Um, only about 15% of the current physician workforce uh, are employed in family medicine, uh, are family medicine practitioners. So there's that issue. Another, another factor that goes into fewer students choosing primary care uh, is where we train our students. What the research has shown us is that um, physicians choose to practice where they train. And if you think about where our training centers are, those places are in um, highly resourced urban centers. So that's where students uh, do their residency and where they plant their roots and where they end up practicing. So thinking about creating residencies in underserved communities, whether they be urban or rural, um, and that is uh, one potential avenue to increasing the number of students who choose to practice in those underserved places. So all of those things, and there are other factors as well, but those are some of the things that, um, uh, that are going into this uh, physician shortage. Yeah, so ranging from the legislative forces that have given rise to access, the demographic shifts, the economic pulls, um, all of those contribute to the choices that future physicians make about where they envision themselves putting on that white coat and, and serving others. So the program that you direct, the Rural and Urban Scholars Pathways Program, RUSP, was established in, in 2013, is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. And it's one of many programs across the U.S. whose goal is really to produce more primary care physicians for rural and urban underserved communities. And in listening to you, right, creating opportunities where um, if we know that students choose to practice where they train, let's enlarge the spatial terrains they have from which to choose. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So in, in the recent article that you wrote for Health Communication, there was a, a really poignant passage of yours that I, that I want to read because it, it stuck with me. I circled it, starred it, um, and, and has continued to, to, to lead me to think about what it is that you, you do. Specifically, you write... I've also come to realize that my role as an educator is to create spaces where these meaningful connections can occur between learners, between teachers and learners, and between learners and the community. This is powerful description. Sharon, can you talk to us a little bit about what it means to you to create and hold space for connections? Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about this and, and I think, um, you know, that I believe that, and Alyssa knows too, that I believe we connect through stories. And I think that transformational learning can happen in that space between our stories, the stories that our own stories of 
what kind of a doctor I want to become, where do I want to practice, why do I choose to have this kind of practice in this kind of place. So our own stories of becoming, and it can also happen as we reflect on the stories we hear from other people, and in our context, future patients. Who are my patients? What's important to them? And particularly patients whose lives may be very different from our own. Um, I'm thinking, um, reminded of why it's so important to privilege those stories of those whose experiences are foreign to us or different from our own, our own experiences. I think that that's, to me, what is at the heart of education, those creating opportunities for learners to listen and to hear um, the stories and engage with the issues through the narratives of people who have experienced them. Um, I'm not particularly interested in teaching through traditional means and, and presenting content. Um, I want to create opportunities where learners can um, connect with other human beings who may someday be their future patients and encourage the students to listen with open minds, open hearts. And then more importantly, even than that is to then reflect on what they've heard and why they've heard um, that particular part of the story. So reflection is an important part of that too. So building reflection relationships through, through stories and through, um, Ultimately, I guess, through um, a sense of vulnerability and openness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's beautiful to think about education and and the role of, of teachers generally as the creation and holding of space in which, to echo what I hear you saying, learning happens in between stories. And and often those stories are quite diverse if if we're doing our job at facilitating a full and free interplay of ideas in a classroom. It's beautiful. So Alyssa, you had an opportunity to participate in these spaces and you chose to do that, right? Um, when you came to medical school at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. What moved you, Alyssa? To, let's start with what moved you to go to medical school and then what moved you to choose RUSP? Okay, wow, goodness. There, it's a long story, <laughs> but <laughs> I will, you know, I'll start from my childhood Growing up, my father was a paramedic, and I always loved going through his paramedic books and looking at all of the blood and guts and gore of the car crashes and being fascinated by the pictures and the instructions on how, how to take care of those people in those moments. And my dad would come home and tell these stories about how he saved people's lives and I always found um, that I, I was yearning for more. I wanted to know what happened to these people that he took to the hospital in the ambulance. What happened um, when they got to the hospital? What 
where the story just ended and I, I yearned to know more and I wanted to be on the other side of that. However, um, I didn't know what that looked like. I considered being a doctor or a nurse or someone in healthcare, but none of my doctors ever looked like me. I'm a black woman. Um, none of my role models looked like me, my teachers or um, people that I looked up to really in my in the spaces in which I grew up. So being a doctor was very far-fetched. It, it's not something that um, I thought I could attain, obtain. So I kind of put that in the back door for many years and just thought that I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough. I, I wasn't good enough. All of those things that um, we can tell ourselves sometimes and really begin to believe it. So it wasn't until um, college where I majored in athletic training and I was um, being an athletic trainer student at some of the surrounding high schools in Athens County and Vinton County. And I would uh, talk with the athletes, hear their stories about their lives and um, go way deeper than just sports itself. And I was learning that in order for them to get quality health care, there were so many barriers. And I realized it was nothing that I could ever do to truly help them achieve wellness, help their family achieve wellness as an athletic trainer. And I knew that I had to, I had to do something more, but still that doctor was, that doctor thing was out of range. And I entertained PA school. Um, but then there was a mentor who came along in athletic training and asked me, have you ever considered being a doctor? And I said, well, yeah, but not me. And he asked me to think about the pros and cons. And it became clear to me that the only thing holding me back was myself and my self-doubt. So in a nutshell, it was really being exposed to those adolescent stories in surrounding Appalachia area that inspired me to want to change the system and have those letters behind my name so that people would believe me when I told their stories and so that I could have the credentials and the knowledge in order to make um, a bigger systemic change in the world. Mm -hmm. Self-doubt can be quite powerful when you don't see and hear and connect with people who are like you and look like you and sound like you and have similar life experiences. So what a blessing uh, to the, to those who you were going to serve that you did come across opportunities and mentors who helped you see what was possible. Yes, absolutely. And I'm grateful because that led me straight to Sharon and straight to Russ. Oh <laughs> yeah. Talk to me, talk to me about Russ and, how you see this as something that's value added, right? Beyond the typical experience that a student might have at, at the Heritage College or, or another medical school. Right. So this program is so unique. I, I don't think there's one like it in the whole entire country. I could be wrong, Sharon, but <laughs> if I, I don't think there is, but you know, I didn't go I didn't go into medicine to be excited to learn about the molecular 
biology of the virus or the components of how you make a medicine and all of those sciencey things that <laughs> that we learned about and it was hard but that's not the reason I went into medicine I went into medicine to connect with human beings and understand their struggles so that I could be part of their healing process and part of healing communities and what I thought medical school was, was of course learning human anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all of all of the typical classes that you would take in medical school. I knew that I would have to learn that. And I wanted to because that's how I could contribute to helping people. But I felt innately that there was a big part of medicine about being a healer that was missing. And I felt that rust filled that exact void. And so it only made sense, especially in my pursuit of family medicine and in primary care and preventive medicine and social justice, that rust kind of fit the mold of what kind of doctor that I wanted to become. And knowing that it would equip me with the tools to serve vulnerable populations, to uh, the tools to understand communities, understand how to connect with communities to understand what their needs are and how I can facilitate fixing the problems that they see as problems. Rusp had, Rusp was like a prescription for that. And I, even before medical school, I had the chance to apply. I knew that I wanted to be in a program like that. And I knew that I wanted to be around people and be um, inspired by people who cared about those same things. Okay, I love the metaphor of RUSP as a prescription. Perhaps a prescription for what ails right? uh, medical schools and what's missing right now. That's, that's profound, Alyssa. Sharon, in, in your essay, when you talk about what makes RUSP unique, you talk about place-based learning. And I think for listeners who largely will not be familiar with this term, can you talk to us about how you understand place-based learning and how central that is for RUSP being this prescription mm. for medical school? Yeah. First, I want to say that um, thank you for uh, your story, Alyssa, um, you, you, in what you've just shared with us, I heard many things that I am going to continue to reflect on. One of the things that I wanted to, in answering the question about what is place-based learning, you said something that really resonated. You said, um, that you wanted to learn how to understand communities. And that's what place-based, a place-based focus in a program can do. It centers the experience of a place and the, the, the people who live in that place. Um, and um, that becomes what, where the uh, learning happens. It happens in a place. It is about that place, the history, the culture, the context of that place and of that community. Um, the Rural Schools and Community Trust, I quote them in the article, um, and they have a really beautiful definition that I think I can't 
say any better. So I'll just repeat their quotation. It's learning that is rooted in what is local, the unique history, environment, culture, economy, economy, literature, and art of a particular place. So we try to do that in the program. And we actually take our students um, into places and um, encourage them to be immersed in communities and learn with communities and from communities instead of just about communities, right? So it can mean that. It can also mean this idea going back to um, something we spoke about earlier um, about practicing where you train. It's this can also mean growing our own, encouraging training students mm-hmm. in a community where they're desperately needed and where we hope that they will someday practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have immersion experiences that are available to students who participate in RESP. And Alyssa, you've participated in immersion experiences. Um, I'm assuming some of those are in, in this local area, but you've also um, immersed yourself in, in contexts as far away as South Africa. Right? Um, can you talk to us about from your perspective, having just gone through the medical school experience, can you talk to us about how the place of learning, right, whether that's an HIV and AIDS clinic in South Africa or a mobile clinic that goes to Gloucester, Ohio, how does the place of learning shape your experience? Hmm. I think there's just nothing that can capture the the meaning and the impact that being surrounded by people who who are living their authentic life um, nothing nothing can match that if you're for example going to South Africa or going to Gloucester in the same it's a humbling experience and you are there as the observer and you get to understand people in the context of their lives, not just by hearing their story or, or just visually seeing their story on stage or in a video in the classroom, um, not hearing, not reading about their story and in, in, in the text, but you're, it's kind of like you're living their story. And I think that's what makes all the difference about taking yourself out of your everyday normal experiences and often experiences of privilege and being the humble fly on the wall that observes how other people live. And when I went to South Africa, I was just that. I was... I was just an observer and I, they taught and that, that, that was a class. That was just a classroom with no boundaries and no limits. I learned more than I ever could in a classroom for just listening to other people and not being in their shoes, but kind of walking a day in their life and seeing what it's like and seeing who they encounter, what, 
their problems they face are? How do they solve their problems? How do they live their best life? What is the definition of their best life? And what does it mean to them? What does community mean to them? Mm-hmm. It strikes me as a very asset-based orientation to being with others, where um, there's this cultivating of a, of a disposition, if you will, to witness the storied lives of another um, as as they live their lives, and and that requires a certain cultural humility on on the part of of those of us who are called to witness to um, really defer to to others to name their worlds to name their problems to name their their assets their strengths before i went to south africa something that i learned from sharon through her actions and through the philosophies that she taught in rust is that Whenever we go into a community, we we need to first first be humble, um, and and not think of what we need to solve. What are the, we can't name their problems and name what we think are the solutions. We have to do the groundwork before going into communities um, and thinking that we are the savior and to understand their stories beforehand and talk with them and connect with them. And through that connection, we gain better understanding of what their needs are. And it becomes clear because they will tell us through those stories or in between those stories and work with them when we get there to solve the problems. And what I've discovered is most often is that they already have the solutions to the problems that they see. And we can help, sometimes we can help facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm excited for you both to listen to another episode of Defining Moments where I was in a conversation with Dr. Arvin Singal from University of Texas at El Paso. And he embraces what he describes as a positive deviance approach where he flips the script of a traditional public health communication that is deficit-driven and top-down. And instead, it's a grassroots asset-based orientation to identifying the people who are thriving in their communities and trying to figure out what they're doing well so that that can be amplified. So you can still address some of those seemingly intractable public health challenges, whether that's now COVID, right, or MRSA, right, um, staph infections that are spread in hospitals. But it it just shifts the way that we think about how expertise comes in a lot of different forms. And Dr. Girth, you are you have expertise that is going to be incredibly important. But so do those individuals in the spaces in which they live, and that's what I hear you saying is fostered through RUSP. Mm. Yeah, what I hear Alyssa saying, um, too, is talking about the development of, I kind of think I like to take pictures. And over time, in the years that I've been taking pictures, 
I've kind of developed, and I've seen this with other developing artists too, you develop an eye, right, for um, composing a photograph or seeing things in a certain way. And I think that's that kind of development of that eye, of that way of seeing, and with a capital S, way of seeing a community, I hope is something that we foster in RUSP. Um, that we develop that openness and that um, ability to look uh, objectively, but uh, with an awareness of your own subjectivity um, and be able to see uh, a place for, um, and the community, the people that live in that community for all that it has to offer. So often that opportunity is missed in medical school um, that people are, um, get a glance at a community, but they don't really get, or they're take a short visit to one, but they don't really have a chance to really fully immerse and fully see. And I think what I heard Alyssa saying is that she, she's developed that eye. She came mm. in with it already, mm. but she's developed mm. that eye. So, yeah. Mm. Gives me hope, uh, for the future. And and right now we're having this conversation in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic and in our lifetimes anyway, right? There's there's no aspect of living and relating and organizing and advocating with others that is it not impacted by by the coronavirus. Um, it it just seems like more than ever, right? This capacity to both honor and acknowledge the science and the technological derivatives that are that are at the heart of biomedicine that while those give us an understanding of the generalities and the patterns of human experience that 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 also must be juxtaposed with the particularities of people's lives and that's what narrative offers us Mm, mm. So I know that narrative also plays a part in RUSP in the form of a couple of different curricular innovations. One of them is the Open Book Project, which is a narrative medicine initiative, and the other is Clinical Jazz. So Sharon, why don't we start with the Open Book Project and drill a little deeper into that? Because at the heart of that, it really is about um, narrative shaping how we learn and storytelling functioning as pedagogy. Can you talk to us uh, about the origins of the Open Book Project, what its goals are? Yes. The, um, the Open Book Project is an initiative that... Um, has been developed over the past several years at the College of Medicine in collaboration with other partners across the university. Um, it started um, out of a conversation around how do we integrate stories into the curriculum. Um, we, we were familiar with narrative medicine, the practices of narrative medicine, um, and I attended a training in Columbia was completely blown away by what I learned and what I experienced in those three days at Columbia with Rita Sharon. And
and was committed to trying to implement this at our college, um, I, it was exactly what I um, had hoped we would be able to um, to use. It was it was the way of imp- of using stories to build relationships. So we brought another group to a second training, a group of faculty and staff and students who were interested in. Uh, doing this as well. And we came back from that training equally excited to develop a curriculum that was uh, that fit our medical school. And we have, over the past two years, um, developed uh, lessons uh, that integrate art and poetry, literature, um, even um, um, different songs and plays, different types of artifacts, uh, and engage the practices of narrative medicine, uh, or close reading, reflective writing, radical listening, those, those pieces of those processes of narrative medicine. We've implemented that with first and second year medical students. And um, it's been really meaningful for the faculty that have been involved with this for the past several years. We've stayed committed to bringing this to um, an actual full elective, which will be offered to our students this fall. Uh, we're very excited about that. And um, the goals of the, you also asked about, that's the history of it. Uh, we've come a long way in the, in the several years that we've been working on it. Um, the goals of our specific version of narrative medicine are to um, parallel the goals of narrative medicine in general, to build relationships through Um, through narrative and through storytelling and sharing, um, but also to bring to the surface issues of inclusion and inequity and um, create opportunities for um, marginalized voices to be centralized in in a small space with um, opportunities for sharing and reflection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me living in the midst of COVID-19, I'm more aware than ever of privilege, much unearned, the privilege of being able to shelter in space and in a safe home and still have a paycheck. And we don't, we don't have very many opportunities in our jobs or in professional training, in this case in medical school, to step back and reflect on privilege, reflect on disadvantage, markers of difference that are consequential because, man, we are going through this storm of COVID, but we are in different boats and it impacts us differently. And I think for me, in listening to you, that the societal exigencies of this moment reveal the the importance of what you're doing and the radical need to create inclusive healthcare and, and acknowledge health inequities. Yeah, we are, you know, increasingly isolated um, and increasingly feeling a division culturally. And um, it's, as you said, been made so much more clear 
how connected we all are, despite the isolation and the divisions that we might feel. Uh, we all, it's so clear that we all need each other to, to really just make it day by day, but we also need each other socially, right? I mean, we, all of us are feeling this sense of isolation so acutely right now. Um, even though we have privilege and, um, you know, people around us, um, I know for myself, I'm, I crave to see human faces, um, on a daily basis because I don't get to. So these, these ways of building connection, this, this isolation is, is so, is, is so much more present now for us, but it exists. And, and I think, um, it makes me think about, um, you know, the value of, of building these connections. When I see the students that I've connected with through open book or through clinical jazz or other parts of RUSP, even if I see them at a screen now, I, it's, there's a connection there that's, that's clear. Um, there's a rapport and a connection that I feel because we were able to um, build those relationships through these, through these opportunities like open book and, and clinical jazz. So with open book, a typical session might involve one or more third things in the room, third objects or artifacts. Right. Um, can can you talk to us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of of what an open book session looks and feels like? Sure. Well, nuts and bolts, they only last about 90 minutes. Um, we have about eight, eight participants. We tried to structure it. So there are two facilitators. So small group, you know, dynamics work out that way. Uh, the facilitators are also, we also consider ourselves as participants. So we are, maybe we're leading the session, but we're really facilitating and we participate alongside the students. So, um, in all, in all ways, um, we do some kind of grounding exercises at the beginning to bring, bring us into the space um, because students are coming out of classes, we're coming out of meetings. So a centering activity is important to get us started. You know, doing some deep breathing and reminding us where we are. Um, we, each of the sessions has a theme or a topic and we've selected a particular piece, that third thing that you mentioned, that provokes that or um, yeah, provokes that topic. Um, it might be a poem. And one of the first sessions we do is um, exploring the story of your name. That's one of the first sessions we do. And we have a poem called Mary that we read um, and read it aloud together. And each of, each of us gets to speak to what we heard that moved us, what's important, what resonated, um, what did we connect with in that poem and or in that piece of art? And then we, uh, as Rita Sharon would say, right in the shadow of the text, we pause and shift gears and pick up a pen and paper and write for five minutes to a prompt. And in the first session that I was describing, the prompt would be something like, tell the story of your name. And we would write for five minutes and stop and then share and people can share uh, 
at whatever level they feel comfortable. That might be reading the whole piece or reading a section of it or not reading at all. Um, and, and then talking about as a group, again, what resonated with you? Where do you connect with what that person shared? Um, and it's, it's as meaning, you know, it's deep and meaningful. And, um, I always personally leave those sessions feeling revitalized and refreshed, sometimes moved, sometimes troubled, but always alive, always alive. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Alyssa, you have also experienced the Open Book Project. Is that correct? For either of you, are there are there any memorable moments that stand out to you that you might be willing to share that invite listeners to to more fully understand that possibility of being alive in that room? I I honestly remember vividly almost every open book I participated in for the exact reason Sharon described of that feeling alive. Um, and I hate to sound so morbid, but medical school hardens you over time. And there are studies that show that over time, from, compared to your first year and your fourth year leaving medical school, that empathy decreases dramatically. And open book project is, is, is vital for reinvigorating your purpose, your empathy, your compassion, not only for your, for others, but for yourself. And while medical school, the rigors of medical school slowly destroys all those things, open book renews it. And there's, there, I know, um, Lynn, you love the podcast on being uh, with Krista Tippett. And um, when Lennon Flowers said, relationships move at the speed of trust. Social change moves at the speed of relationships. I think that Sharon has embodied that notion and, and allows it to take that exact thing to take place in HCOM, whereas it, something like that could never transform medical students the way that Open Book Project has. And Sharon's brought that to us. Um, I just wanted mm. to say that, but mm. as far mm-hmm. as my memorable moment, um, I can Amen. speak to <laughs> Okay, I, can- I have to tell you really quickly, Alyssa, mm-hmm. I know exactly what episode of On Being you're talking about <laughs> with Jennifer Bailey, right, and Lennon Flowers, yeah. and an amazing part of that episode is their introduction of the notion of brave spaces. And they talk about the need to shift away from a language of a safe space because of the vulnerability that is ever present. And some people, because of the color of their skin, their gender or sexual identity, their socioeconomic resources, all of those markers of difference might heighten that vulnerability or make us feel more comfortable. And so 
really what they are arguing for is the creation of brave spaces where we can be vulnerable, where we can be connect, where we can name our worlds um, and to imagine different ones, right? And I absolutely believe that Sharon um, and the other participants of RASP are doing that. They're creating brave spaces. Yes. And what's so interesting about that is that, you know, in medical school, any anything that had to do with RASP and Sharon was there, I saw it as a safe space. So I knew that I could practice vulnerability if Sharon was there. She practiced vulnerability and inspired it in others and inspired other people to be authentic and to share their stories and to grow and for everyone else to grow. And so what's very powerful about this open book is that I wasn't in Sharon's group for this, but in all the safe spaces that Sharon created by simply existing in those spaces and her being her, this open book project to me was one of the first brave spaces that I was in because she wasn't there, but she, but her legacy and her creativity fostered open book. So I knew that it was coming from her, but she had created these spaces where now when she's not there anymore and I don't feel safe, now I'm in a brave space where I can cultivate vulnerability and feel brave enough and courageous enough to do it and, mm -hmm. okay. and carry that out into the world as a doctor. Mm -hmm. And hopefully invite those that you care for to be brave in, in the moments they're with you, right? To trust you enough to be brave. I just, I have to say, Alyssa, that um, I so appreciate all of the words that, the kind words, and I feel um, so grateful for um, you being able to articulate those things about the experiences you've had and how meaningful they've been. I just want to let you know that, you know, you have been... Um, <laughs> it's going to be like a little love fest going on here, but <laughs> you have been, you have been such a partner through all of this. And that's truly how I have, how I have seen you from when you first started medical school, the conversations that we've had over the past five years have, have allowed me to be vulnerable and have encouraged me to be vulnerable and have opened my eyes and, um, I, I, I hope you recognize that all of those things about the impact that these spaces have had on you, you have created those and have that same, have had that same impact um, in, in our relationship, but also in the school as a whole. You, you really have. And, and you've been a leader in so many different ways and have um, you also um, need to know that you have left a legacy um, I'm still there and I'm still doing your good work. I'm still trying. <laughs> and, um, and I very appreciate all of the conversations we've had and all of the things that we've um, endeavored to do together. Thank you, Sharon. That's a very kind of you. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's interesting. Open Book Project, its origins came from an impulse toward um, addressing racial bias and fostering 
an inclusive environment in in medical schools, but also in in broader healthcare arenas. And the open book sessions do that in part by allowing individuals like Sharon and I, who are white middle class women, to explore what is the role of a white ally in the struggle for racial equality and how can we leverage privilege to disrupt inequities? And I think that that's a gift as well. Is I think you would never, there's no, there's no, um, structure or written instructions for how that happens in open book. And I don't think that any, um, any person who participates would expect that to be the outcome, but it simply is the outcome. And Sharon, you can maybe explain how that happens, but in my, in my eyes, how we gain this whatever the word is deeper for deeper than empathy, a word deeper than empathy. Um, I think it comes from looking inward and it's never as direct as asking someone, how does racism affect you and what are you going to do about it? It's it open book calls upon the participant to evaluate what their values are and to go back deep into their memories, even all the way back into childhood, to vulnerably express things of the subconscious that we don't even realize or remember. And it comes out in paper when you're writing freely, when you're free writing in those five minutes, when you don't censor yourself, when you allow your true self to just be and you learn from that and you learn from your humanity and you learn from the humanity of others when you listen to their stories and somehow you're radically transformed in that process and it's i just think it's just not what you think is going to happen and then that transformation carries you um, in all your interactions with yourself and with others for days and months to come Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great way of describing um, and giving um, an explicit example of what we were talking about earlier about the learning happens in the space between stories. That's that's exactly um, your description of that. It is exactly what I'm talking about. That um, we have a broad prompt that we use: tell the story of your name. You know, when have you experienced this? What are things you carry with you? These broad, open topics. And um, it allows the individuals to um, go as deep inside and be as reflective as they choose. But the sharing part, I think, and that connecting, that saying those stories out loud and being heard um, and being heard and seen in that moment of authenticity and vulnerability and being validated, it's so powerful. That's the connection that happens right there in that moment. And it's mm-hmm. so powerful. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Coming full circle. Why is this turn 
toward learning through stories, connecting through stories, narrative-oriented medical education, place-based medical education. Why is it so critical right now? Mm. Yeah. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, Medical school is an isolating place. Students are with each other all day, but there is an increasing isolation and there's an alarming statistics around um, physician burnout, medical student burnout, suicide, um, mental health issues. These, these things are real in, in medical students and physicians. And, um, you know, that sense of isolation, I think we need to find ways to create opportunities for students to connect with each other to buffer against that isolation, to, to connect with each other and to connect with faculty. Some of the students in open book and clinical jazz have told us that this is the only opportunity that they've had to connect with faculty at this kind of a level, to build that social support. It's so important um, for the, for students' well-being and, and, and mental health. Um, um, and what we talked about earlier, our lives are, are becoming increasingly divided and isolated and, and we're using screens and we're, we're not connecting with, the, with each other in, in face-to-face ways. So I think as, as much as we can build this in, um, into education as, as a part of education for students, it protects against those, those negative effects of, of isolation. I think if there's if there's one skill that is most important to being a well-rounded healer and physician it's being able to connect and unfortunately it that's simply not taught in medical schools and we're not we're not taught to radically listen we're not taught to humbly put our egos aside and empathize deeply. And there's a huge piece of the pie that's missing from medical school. And I think that's what, what I believe that's what's rest in open book projects and things that give us the space to be vulnerable. That's, it fills that gap. And in this time that we're at right now, even before this all happened, that's what was missing in medical students and in physician and the many physicians that I um, rotated with on rotations is that ability to connect, is to sit with someone's struggle, is to um, feel their joy, their pain, and to be with them in their experience. We really lack that ability and clinical jazz, open book, those give that those programs give the students who have the privilege of participating in them. Not all medical students do. Um, it helps us cultivate those skills that if we don't have them, we're simply not going to be an effective physician. And what all these skills do ultimately is helps us helps ourselves take off the mask 
our own mask, take off our own ego and to look inward so that we can connect with others um, as we connect with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For the skeptics out there, one thing that I want to emphasize is that RUSP, as I know it, and as you all have described it, as Sharon has written about it, as she has directed it, this is an integrative pathway program. It is not alternative to. It is not a dismissal of the anatomy, the physiology, right? All of the other rigors of medical school that that makes students like Alyssa the experts that they become. It doesn't dismiss that, but instead, in many ways, what what I've seen is that it it really embraces what Catherine Montgomery in her book How Doctors Think. She talks about medicine as a science using interpretive craft. And she does that because she argues that we have over overemphasized the scientific rationalities at the heart of medicine to the exclusion of the narrative sense making that that is demanded when you are trying to think about how something like diabetes is lived in the context of a person's life and in the place, the community that they live in, the resources they have access to. So for those listening, I, I encourage you to, to read um, Sharon's article on health communication. It's made freely accessible through our partnership with health communication in this podcast. And um, it's a refreshing enlargement of, of the way that we think about what it means to heal um, and how we prepare people for that, um, for that role. As we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't talked about that for either of you is important to share with listeners? Or anything you'd like to share with each other? I I mean, I have to, again, give Sharon credit because I truly believe that you know, before, before I didn't even believe I could get into medical school, I didn't even believe I could be a physician. But now after working with Sharon and going through all of these processes to peel the layers of what it means to be an ally, what it means to be a healer, um, what it means to love myself and love others, it simply wouldn't be possible without Sharon's creativity and her courage to bring all of this here to HCOM and sustain it and to secure the funding for it even. Um, She's really created a culture of brave spaces here and all students do is benefit. And when the medical students benefit, the future patients benefit. And at the end of the day, This is for our patients, for the vulnerable patients, for the people that don't have access, for people who are turned away from the medical field, for people who are 
discriminated against. Um, at the end of the day, if we don't remember who it's all for, we will become hardened. And RUSP in itself teaches me a phrase that I learned in South Africa called Ubuntu. I am because you are. My patients, whether they're from the LGBTQ community, the Black community, sex workers, people who suffer from substance use disorder, the homeless, I am because you are. And Rust grounds us enough and humbles us enough to connect with the people who need our care the most and to remember that I am because you are. I am the healed and the healer. And I'm so grateful for that. And I believe because of Rust, I'm going to be a physician who understands people and can care for them the best that I can. Hmm. Bless you, Alyssa. And, and you, Sharon, for your efforts and, and those of, of your colleagues. Mm. Thank you. Elisa Mbuntu. I am because mm. you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Sharon Casapula and Dr. Elisa Gerth and I for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. We hope that you'll follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we'll have a link to Sharon's recent article that has been an anchor in our conversation today. We hope you will take time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and do go in peace and and love one another. <laughs>